0: This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association.
1: Hello. Welcome to Conversations with the Present. I'm your host, Vivine Salmon. There's a lot of talk about the articling crisis in Canada. Law students are having a hard time finding articling positions, and those who do complete their articles can't always get a job afterwards. The blame generally doesn't go to belt-tightening law firms, who have been hiring fewer law students since the 2008 recession, but to the ever-rising number of law students coming out of a growing number of law schools. Renit Dinovitzer is a professor of sociology at the University of Toronto. She's also a faculty fellow at the American Bar Foundation in Chicago, an affiliated faculty in Harvard's program on the legal profession. Renee was involved in the After the J.D. Project, a longitudinal study of law school graduates in the United States. She's also the author of Law and Beyond, a national study of Canadian law graduates, who they are and what they do after getting their law degrees. Welcome to the podcast, Renee. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. In this episode, we're talking about whether there are too many law schools producing too many grads for too few articling positions and jobs once they've passed the bar. Both your after-the-JD study in the U.S. and the law and beyond studied in Canada feature responses from law grads, of which 97% were employed after they finished their studies. So, is the fear about lack of jobs overblown? So I'll I'll give you a few
2: answers. On the one hand, I think my studies are fairly reflective of experience. If you look in Ontario, it's somewhere between 5 to 10% of graduates who don't find articling positions. Hmm. So the numbers aren't that far off of course you worry about every single graduate who doesn't find a job Mm -hmm. and i think the question then is who are those graduates who are not finding jobs and Mm -hmm. we understand from research Mm -hmm. um, that they tend to be members of racialized communities or individuals who who come from less uh, advantageous backgrounds Mm -hmm. so while i don't think we're in crisis mode right those those statistics Mm -hmm. don't lead to necessarily crisis of the legal profession Mm -hmm. at the same time we want to worry about Um, what are the patterns? And what has led to those patterns? Why are these individuals not finding jobs? We also know that growth in the profession in Canada is fairly recent, Mm -hmm. and that's part of what's going on here. Um, And there's a a few different pressure points for that that underline that growth, new law schools, growth in law schools, whatever it might be. so.
1: So let's maybe continue on the vein that you touched upon. Both the U.S. and Canadian studies suggest that people who go to law school schools come from white advantaged families. That conclusion for some people doesn't really come as a surprise. But from a diversity perspective, are we really seeing any significant changes in who's graduating from law school and who's getting jobs? We are.
2: Change is slow. But if you look back over time... I have some data here. I think it was in 1981, um, only 2% of young lawyers were a member of a racialized community. Um, by 2006, it was 20%. Uh, by 2018, in the most recent Law Society annual report, it was 23%. Hmm. So change is slow. Mm-hmm. Um, we do see it among younger cohorts, of course. You're not going to see it in the older cohorts. Mm -hmm. Um, It is lagging behind some other professions like engineering um, or the medical profession. Mm -hmm. But again, there's also supply demand there, you know, where where are the young kids getting pushed by their parents? What career paths are open to them? But also where do they see their future? So it's always push-pull. I think the trajectory is positive.
1: That's great. That's good to hear. So switching gears a little bit, The Law and Beyond study found students' articling experience was the most useful factor in finding a job after being called to the bar. Does your articling job determine your entire legal future? That's a loaded question.
2: Certainly, there's a strong correlation. And that's the legal profession that we've created, you know, in Ontario, certainly in Canada. So it's hard to get out of that. And especially with the rise of importance of beginning your career in the private sector, So uh, the data show that if you begin, the larger the firm in which you begin your job, the more likely you are to get hired back. Mm. And so as large law firms uh, began to hire larger entering classes, that means a greater proportion of individuals are now staying in those jobs for a number of years. So I think a little bit by design, you see that less so uh, in the public sector, of course, But yeah, I think it ends up front-ending a lot of career decisions, and and the stress of law students mm-hmm. definitely is attuned to that fact. So, again, I think it's a system that we designed. I don't I don't think it's a surprise, mm-hmm. um, but it certainly means that the law student has their future in their hands. We know that there's a ton of career mobility as well. Yes, so. Uh, While it might be the job that you article at and then stay at for a number of years, there's huge mobility to come. So I think the message to law students is, yes, maybe the first five years of your career are set, Mm -hmm. but that is by no means the rest of your career. Careers are long.
1: I think that's amazing and a really positive thing for young lawyers to remember Um, That law can be a long career, and there, like you said, there's lots of mobility, and I think that's maybe one of the advantages for young lawyers now. Although that feeling of instability might feel more stressful, on the other side of that, you have a lot of career options that might not have been open to senior lawyers now.
2: Yeah, I agree that the world of possibilities is there. I think it's to everyone's advantage to understand that they can move. But at the same time, my research does show in the American context, where I followed lawyers over 13 years, there are typical career paths. Now, that was the class of 2000 in the American context. But we found, you know, eight typical career paths. You know, you start in a big firm and then um, you stay on, or you start in a big firm and then eventually you move to a small firm. So there are typical paths. But again, it, it's a long, it's a long way to go. And, and we do see some changes at the edges, although I'm not sure how fundamentally um, the nature of
1: careers is, has changed yet. Mm, interesting. So the other guest we've had in this episode is Anne Varasalouji, who is the acting dean of Ryerson's new law school, which starts in fall 2020. Its students, from what I understand, won't need to article what will that mean for their job prospects?
2: So this is me speaking uh, without data, uh, but just my observations and experience with the data. Tell me a few things. One, we live in a system in the in the Toronto in the Ontario legal profession where articling is part of the process. So it's going to be a little bit tough for those grad you know for both the profession and those graduates to marry in a sense to Mm -hmm. figure out how that dance is going to work and i think it's going to take some forward thinking um we already have some experience with borlaskins law school Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. um their their graduates don't article either but again they're not necessarily entering the toronto market so i do think it's going to possibly be a double-edged sword Mm -hmm. on the one hand no articles on the other hand uh, trying to get jobs where people are used to hiring from articling.
1: Hmm. So I also want to ask you, I know where time is winding down together, um, but your many of your studies, I think, have touched on student debt. And I think this is an increasingly important issue, given that the cost of legal education seems to be very high. Also, the living costs, especially in big cities like um, Toronto, Vancouver, ottawa it's very expensive for students so what effect does debt level have on the job law grads take great question the major research that we know your job
2: doesn't deter your the level of your debt doesn't determine what kind of job you're gonna take so for example the big concern in the american context was that high debt levels meant that students wouldn't pursue public interest positions Mm -hmm. That hypothesis has not been borne out Mm -hmm. by tons of research. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you look at my Canadian data, Mm -hmm. we do see students with the highest debt levels working um, a little bit different than the American context. I do see a little bit more of a relationship in the Canadian context between level of debt and where students are working. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a tough one to say, but I should say that at the end of the day, at least from uh, my American data, we see the lawyers are paying off their debt um they would still choose to go to law school again if mm-hmm. asked mm-hmm. and so yeah and the other thing i tell all my students all the time who worry about things like this is that all professional schools are expensive mm-hmm. law medicine dentistry mm-hmm. we're, they're all in the same boat mm-hmm. and
1: so i think it's always healthy to to look around that's true and i think that's very encouraging to people student debt of course is a very challenging issue but it doesn't determine your happiness and success in the legal profession. I would say that's correct. So on that note, I'd like to ask you if there's anything you'd like to add before we wrap up. Well, I always end my talks with my you know, persistent
2: statistic, which is that close to three quarters of the lawyers I study say they're moderately to extremely satisfied with their decision to become a lawyer. Almost every lawyer I meet is surprised by that fact. And of course, the things you're satisfied with vary depending on your job. Some people are more or less satisfied with their Mm -hmm. pay or more or less satisfied with the intellectual content of their work. Mm -hmm. But as a career choice, they tend to say, it was a good career choice. So I like to end on a positive note.
1: We've been talking with Ronit Dinovitzer, a professor of sociology at the University of Toronto, who's been studying what law grads in Canada and the US do once they've passed the bar. Next fall, Ryerson University in Toronto will open the doors of its new faculty of law. The 150 students in the first cohort will benefit from the school's IPC, or Integrated Practice Curriculum, an innovative way of teaching law that covers more of the practical aspects of legal training than a traditional legal education. The IPC would also allow students to bypass articling an important consideration, since the number of articling positions seems to be shrinking. Anver Saluji is Ryerson's Vice President International, a full professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration, and the Interim Dean of the new law school. Anwar, let me ask you, does Canada really need another law school?
0: The answer, Vavine, is uh, absolutely but not of the same ilk, it needs a law school that trains lawyers differently. Mm. And by that, I mean lawyers who are practice ready, lawyers who are entrepreneurial, lawyers who are going to think differently about the law, about innovation, about legal technology.
1: So let's pick up on that. So each year, Ryerson will be adding 100 or more law graduates to a market where people some say are already having a great deal of difficulty finding not just articling positions, but legal jobs. Is it fair and honest with students to say that we are training them for jobs that might not exist, even if we're talking about a, of a new way of training lawyers?
0: I think students are pretty, uh, are pretty smart these days. I think they understand the job market. But I think students today are also uh, incredibly savvy they'll be job creators, not just uh, job takers. One of the ways in which the Ryerson Law School has attempted to deal with what many talk about as the articling crisis is to in fact uh, uh, ensure by going to the, um, the Law Society of Ontario that we've been able to meet the criteria that the Law Society uh, has uh, set out uh, for the integrated uh, practice program and our students who graduate from Ryerson If they don't wish to, don't have to article, they can go straight to practice.
1: So let's pick up on that a little bit more. What is it about the IPC that attracts students to the school?
0: I think there's two things. One of the things we heard as we were doing really, really extensive uh, external and internal consultations with the legal community with uh, um, legal practitioners, big firms, small firms, sole practitioners, was that they were getting uh, graduates who were not uh, practice ready, Mm. that they had uh, theoretical knowledge, but uh, the practice of law uh, was uh, proving to be a challenge for them.
1: So I guess what you're saying is it almost seems then that we haven't quite caught up in terms of legal education. And this model is quite an innovative model then. But let's take it back a step before that. When we talk about articling, it seems to me, and I think for many other lawyers, that graduates who article at a firm, particularly a large, a large firm, they seem to have a stamp of legitimacy Mm -hmm. And so there seems to be a pervasive stigma against students who didn't article in this traditional model. How do you think that IPC and Ryerson Law School addresses that stigma?
0: I'm hoping, and it's it's an interesting question that you raise, because um, when I went uh, uh, to the firms to talk about uh, uh, the approval that we received from the Law Society of Ontario, they asked exactly that question. And I said to them, uh, in every other occupation, uh, people have a one-year probationary period. So you'd hire a Ryerson, um law graduate who has also uh, received uh, their license, and now they're coming to your firm, and you hire them as uh, on a one-year probation. If they work out, fabulous. You've got a you've got an associate that's going to do well with the firm, and if they don't, that's what you have a probationary period for. I would say that articling is uh, similar to a prep- probationary period.
1: Okay. Um, well, I'd like to take us a little bit in another direction. I live in Toronto right now, and Ryerson is in the centre of the most diverse city in Canada, mm-hmm. and in fact, the world. How will you ensure that its law students reflect that diversity, not just socio-cultural, but also economic?
0: Wow. And that's always the hard question because uh, of um, the access to legal education being so expensive. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, we uh, worked incredibly hard to ensure that uh, we could keep our our tuition fees as as low as possible. But of course, it's all expensive. Mm -hmm. So on the other side, the university has made a commitment to finding as many scholarships and bursaries and working with individuals and firms and donors to ensure that we have a pool of money that we can ensure that students from uh, who are well-deserving and can come to law but can't afford to do so will have access to scholarships and bursaries.
1: That's a really amazing. And I want to also talk to you a little bit about innovation. I know Ryerson, seems to be quite um, a mover and shaker in having an innovative curriculum. And maybe you can describe a little bit more detail what makes Ryerson unique in the IPC program than any other law school from across the country. What are students learning then?
0: A few things with respect to the curriculum. Now, I'm not uh, a lawyer, so... Um, I will confess that uh, I had uh, a wonderful uh, group of colleagues who were my um, content experts who developed the curriculum. But when we looked at uh, uh, legal curriculum, we alighted on what's referred to as the Carnegie model and the Carnegie approach to uh, legal curriculum that is very much a practice-based uh, curriculum where we identify the core uh, competencies that lawyers require, and and then bring it t- together in, uh, on a sound academic footing. So three or four um, major innovations that, uh, that I believe uh, mark us as, as somewhat different. The first uh, key innovation in year one, a co-teaching model that includes uh, working with lawyers to bring theory and practice into each subject area with a focus on um, current and future technologies that are relevant to, to legal service delivery.
1: So I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about technology. So you're going to be teaching coding, for example. Yes. Why do lawyers need to know coding, about coding, and perhaps even how to code?
0: So it's it's a bit about coding, but it's more about the process of coding and what's involved. And we have a, a really exciting initiative Uh, at Ryerson that's not associated with the law school it's called the legal innovation zone Hmm. we also have um, a university incubator the the digital media zone or the DMZ but the legal innovation zone brings uh, practitioners uh, uh, and tech people together in interesting spaces where they find uh, uh, innovative new kinds of uh, technologies to offer uh, legal services.
1: And can you tell us a little bit about the cost? I know we touched on it, but I think maybe that's something that our listeners might want to learn more about in terms of how much is the cost of the IPC program and how much is the cost of this continuing
0: ed model? So um, the entire curriculum uh, is, uh, it's a three-year curriculum, it's the J.D., the uh, tuition for our students is set at twenty-one thousand one hundred and sixteen, or forty-six something in that range. So, just over twenty-one thousand dollars,
1: and that's per year, of course.
0: Yeah. So over three years, it'll be just over sixty-three thousand dollars.
1: Okay. So I'd like to maybe ask you if there's anything that you think is critically important in this discussion that you'd like to share with our listeners.
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. If I can, Mm -hmm, of course. One is when we began this project of thinking about a new kind of law school and why Ryerson. I think we thought that Ryerson has a long history of uh, doing placements, uh, engaging with the community. It's uh, our part of our DNA is uh, is being a city builder our commitment to equity, diversity and inclusion, and uh, I took that as the starting point for the uh, law school, and uh, the committee took that as a starting point, so we alighted on four pillars that would uh, hopefully differentiate this law school, a focus on equity, diversity and inclusion, ensuring representation. Uh, a focus on uh, legal technology because Ryerson has that uh, innovation component built into a lot of its coursework and our university incubators. Uh, a, a focus on uh, access to justice because that's such a huge problem in in um, in our country, our city, and our province. And and then on top of all of that, uh, sound academics. So to achieve all of that, uh, we our Curriculum is highly prescriptive, but at the same time, in third year, we have a mandatory placement for all students.
1: That's really interesting. You know, the mandatory placement, though, are you having challenges potentially placing students, though? Are there en- enough spots of those mandatory placements, potentially?
0: I, uh, I'm i pretty convinced uh, we will have no problems uh, placing students for one semester in a variety of settings.
1: So, Anver, I know we didn't have a lot of time to talk today. And I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to me and to share with our listeners across Canada about some of the new issues facing the legal profession as well as what's happening at Ryerson with the with the new law school. So thank you very much.
0: Vavine, thanks to you. You've been a wonderful host and uh, very kind with all of your questions. Really appreciate it.
1: When Ryerson's Law School opens in September 2020, it will be one of several new law schools in Canada promising a more practice oriented curriculum. But whether it will add to or help resolve the articling crisis in Canada remains to be seen. We want to hear your stories about the changes you've seen in the legal profession or think the profession needs to make. Where do you see generational conflict and how do you suggest we overcome it? Let us know on Twitter at CBA underscores news, on Facebook, and on Instagram at Canadian Bar Association. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes, and to hear us in French. Listen to our Jury's Branché podcast.